Volume three, chapter thirteen of the Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirteen. There was a large lugger lying off at no great distance from the beach near Sandgate, and a small boat ready for launching on the shore. At the distance of two or three miles out might be seen a vessel of considerable size, and of that peculiar rig and build which denoted to nautical eyes that there lay a king's vessel. She was indeed a frigate of inferior class, which had been sent round to cooperate with the customs in the suppression of the daring system of smuggling, which, as we have shown, was carried on in Romney Marsh and the neighbouring country. By the lesser boat upon the shore stood four stout fellows, apparently employed in making ready to put off, but upon the high ground above was seen a single officer of customs, walking carelessly to and fro, and apparently taking little heed of the proceedings below. Some movements might be perceived on board the ship. The sails, which had been furled, now began to flutter in the wind, which was blowing strong, and it seemed evident that the little frigate was about to get under way. The lugger, however, remained stationary, and the men near the boat continued their labours for nearly an hour after they seemed in reality to have nothing more to do. At length, however, coming at a furious pace down one of the narrow footpaths from the high ground above, which led away towards Cheriton and Newington, was seen a horseman waving his hand to those below and passing within fifty yards of the officers of customs. The sailors who were standing by the boat instantly pushed her down to the very verge of the water. The officer hallooed after the bold rider, but without causing him to pause for an instant in his course, and down at thundering speed across the road and over the sand and shingle. Harding, the smuggler, dashed on till the horse that bore him stood foaming and panting beside the boat instantly springing out of the saddle he cast the bridle on the tired beast's neck and jumped into the skiff exclaiming shove her off aren't there some more jack asked one of the men none but myself replied harding and me they shan't catch shove her off i say you'll soon see who are coming after the men obeyed at once the boat was launched into the water and almost at the same time the party of dragoons in pursuit appeared upon the top of the rise, followed a moment after by Birchett and another officer of the customs. The vehement and angry gestures of the riding officer indicated plainly enough that he saw the prey had escaped him, but while the dragoons and his fellow officer made their way slowly down the bank to the narrow road which at that time ran along the beach, he galloped off towards a signal post, which then stood upon an elevated spot, not far from the place where the turnpike, on the road between Sandgate and Folkestone, now stands. In a few minutes various small flags were seen rapidly running up to the top of the staff, and as speedily as possible afterwards signals of the same kind were displayed on board the frigate. In the meantime, however, Harding and his party had rowed rapidly towards the lugger, the sails of which were already beginning to fill, and in less than two minutes she was scudding through the water as fast as the wind would bear her. But the frigate was also under way, and to both experienced and inexperienced eyes it seemed that the bold smuggler had hardly one chance of escape. Between Dungeness Point and the royal vessel there appeared to be no space for any of those daring manoeuvres by which the small vessels engaged in the contraband trade occasionally eluded the pursuit of their larger and more formidable opponents but Harding still pursued his course, striving to get into the open sea before the frigate could cut him off. 
Bending under the press of sail, the boat rushed through the waves, with the uptide running strong against her, and the spray dashing over her from stem to stern. But still, as she took an angle, though an acute one, with the course of the frigate, the latter gained upon her every moment, till at length a shot, whistling across her bows, gave her the signal to bring to. It is needless to tell the reader that signal received no attention, but, still steered with a firm hand, and carrying every stitch of canvas she could bear, the lugger pursued her way. A minute had scarcely passed ere flash and report came again from the frigate, and once more a ball whistled by. Another and another followed, but no longer directed across the lugger's bow, they were evidently aimed directly at her, and one of them passed through the foresail, though without doing any farther damage. The case seemed so hopeless not only to those who watched the whole proceeding from the shore, but to most of those who were in the lugger, that a murmured consultation took place among the men, and after two or three more shots had been fired, coming each time nearer and nearer to their flying mark, one of the crew turned to Harding, who had scarcely uttered a word since he entered the boat, and said, "'Come, sir, I don't think this will do. We shall only get ourselves sunk for no good. We had better douse.' Harding looked sternly at him for a moment without reply, and a somewhat bitter answer rose to his lips, but he checked himself and said at length, "'There's no use sacrificing your lives. You've got wives and children, fathers and mothers. I have no one to care for me. Get into the boat and be off. Me they shall never catch, dead or alive. And if I go to the bottom, it's the best berth for me now. Here, just help me reeve these tiller ropes that I may take shelter under the companion.' and then be off as fast as you can. The men would fain have remonstrated, but Harding would hear nothing, and covering himself as much as he could from the aim of small arms from the vessel, he insisted that the whole of his crew should go and leave him. A short pause in the lugger's flight was observable from the shore, and everybody concluded that she had struck. The rowboat, filled with men, was seen to pull off from her, and the large heavy sails to flap for an instant in the wind. But then her course was altered in a moment, the sails filled again with the full breeze, and going like a swallow over the waves, she dashed on towards the frigate, and passing within pistol range immediately after, shot across upon her weather-bow. A cloud of smoke ran all along the side of the frigate, as this bold and extraordinary manoeuvre was executed. The faint report of small arms was wafted by the wind to the shore, as well as the sound of several cannon. But still, whether Harding was wounded or not wounded, living or dead, his gallant boat dashed steadily on, and left the frigate far behind, apparently giving up the chase, as no longer presenting any chance of success. On, on went the lugger, diminishing as it flew over the waves, till at length, to the eyes even of those who watched from the heights, its dark, tan sails grouped themselves into one small speck, and were then lost to the sight. The after-fate of that adventurous man, who thus, single and unaided, trusted himself to the wide waves, is wrapped in obscurity. The writer of these pages, indeed, did once see a stern-looking old man of the same name, who had returned some few years before from distant lands, no one well knew whence, to spend the last few years of a life which had been protracted considerably beyond the ordinary term of human existence, in a seaport not very far from Folkestone. The conversation of the people of the place pointed him out as one who had done extraordinary deeds and seen strange sights, but whether he was indeed the harding of this tale or not, I cannot say. 
Of one thing, however, the reader may be certain, that in all the statements regarding the smuggler's marvellous escape, the most scrupulous accuracy has been observed, and that every fact is as true as any part of history, and a great deal more so than most. Having now disposed of one of our principal characters, let me take the reader gently by the hand and lead him back to Harborne House. The way is somewhat long, but still not more than a stout man can walk without fatigue upon a pleasant morning, and it lies, too, amongst sweet and interesting scenes, which, to you and me, dear reader, are, I trust, embellished by some of the charms of association. It was about six days after the attack upon the church at Goudhurst, when a great number of those personages, with whom it has been necessary to make the reader acquainted, were assembled in the drawing-room of Sir Robert Croyland's mansion. One or two, indeed, were wanting, even of the party which might have been expected there, but their absence shall be accounted for hereafter. The baronet himself was seated in the armchair, which he generally occupied more as a mark of his state and dignity than for comfort and convenience. In the present instance, however, he seemed to need support, for he leaned heavily upon the arm of the chair, and appeared languid and feeble. His face was very pale, his lips somewhat livid, and yet, though suffering evidently under considerable corporeal debility, there was a look of mental relief in his eyes, and a sweet placidity about his smile, that no one had seen on his countenance for many years. Mrs. Barbara was, as usual, seated at her everlasting embroidery, and here we may as well mention a fact which we omitted to mention before, but which some persons may look upon as indicative of her mental character, namely, that the embroidery, though it had gone on all her life, by no means proceeded in an even course of progression. On the contrary, to inexperienced eyes, it seemed as if no sooner was a stitch put in than it was drawn out again, the point of the needle being gently thrust under the loop of the thread, and then the arm extended with an even sweep so as to withdraw the silk from its hole in the canvas. Penelope's web was nothing to Mrs. Barbara Croyland's embroidery, for the Queen of Ithaca only undid what she had previously done every night, and Aunt Bab undid it every minute. On the present occasion she was more busy in the retroactive process than ever, not only pulling out the silk she had just put in, but a great deal more, so that the work of the last three days was in imminent danger of total destruction. Mr. Zachary Croylan never sat down when he could stand, for there was about him a sort of mobility and activity of spirits, which always inclined him to keep his body ready for action. He so well knew that, when seated, he was incessantly inclined to start up again, that probably he thought it of little use to sit down at all, and consequently he was even now upon his feet, midway between his brother and his sister, rubbing his hands and giving a gay but cynical glance from one to the other. In a chair near the window, with his wild but fine eyes gazing over the pleasant prospect which the terrace commanded, and apparently altogether absent in mind from the scene in the drawing-room, was seated Mr. Osborne, and not far from Mr. Croyland stood Sir Henry Leighton, in an ordinary riding-dress, with his left hand resting on the hilt of his sword, speaking in an easy, quiet tone to Sir Robert Croyland. And nearly opposite to him was Edith, with her arm resting on the table, and her cheek supported on her hand. Her face was still pale, though the colour had somewhat returned, and the expression was grave, though calm. Indeed, she never recovered the gay and sparkling look which had characterised her countenance in early youth, but the expression had gained in depth and intensity more than it had lost in brightness. And then, when she did smile, 
It was with ineffable sweetness, a gleam of sunshine upon the deep sea. Her eyes were fixed upon her lover, and those who knew her well could read in them satisfaction, love, hope, nay, more than hope, a pride, the only pride that she could know, that he whom she had chosen in her girlhood, to whom she had remained true and faithful through years of sorrow and unexampled trial, had proved himself in every way worthy of her first affection and her long constancy. But where was Zara? Where Sir Edward Digby? For neither of them were present at the time. From the laws of attraction between different terrestrial bodies, we have every reason to infer that Digby and Zara were not very far apart. However, they had been somewhat eccentric in their orbits, for Zara had gone out a couple of hours before, Digby being then absent, no one knew where, upon a charitable errand, to carry consolation and sympathy to the cottage of poor Mrs. Clare, whose daughter had been committed to the earth the day before. How it happened, heaven only knows, but certain it is that at the moment I now speak of, she and Digby were walking home together, towards Harborne House, while his servant led his horse at some distance behind. Before they reached the house, however, a long conversation had taken place between the personages in the drawing-room, of which I shall only give the last few sentences. "'It is true, Harry, it is true,' said Sir Robert Croyland, in replying to something just spoken by Leighton, "'and we have both things to forgive, but you far more than I have, "'and as you have set me an example of doing good for evil, "'and atoning by every means for a slight error, "'I will not be backward to do the same, "'and to acknowledge that I have acted most wrongly towards you, "'for which may heaven forgive me, as you have done. "'I have small means of atoning for much that is past, "'but to do so as far as possible.' freely and with my full consent take the most valuable thing i have to give my dear child's hand nay hear me yet a moment i wish your marriage to take place as soon as possible i have learned to doubt of time and never to trust the future say a week a fortnight edith but let it be speedily it is my wish let me say for the last time it is my command but brother robert exclaimed mrs barbara ruining her embroidery irretrievably in the agitation of the moment you know it can't be so very soon for there are all the dresses to get ready and the settlements to be drawn up and a thousand things to buy and our cousins in yorkshire must be informed and dear cousins in yorkshire exclaimed mr zachary croyland now my dear bab tell me candidly whether you have or have not any nice little plan ready for spoiling the whole "'and throwing us all into confusion again. "'Don't you think you could just send Edith "'to visit somebody in the smallpox? "'Or get Harry Leighton run through in a duel, "'or some other little comfortable consummation "'which may make us all as unhappy as possible?' "'Really, Brother Zachary, I don't know what you mean,' "'said Mrs. Barbara, looking the picture of injured innocence. "'I dare say not, Bab,' answered Mr. Croyland. "'But I understand what you mean, "'and I tell you it shall not be.' "'Edith shall fix the day, and as a good child she will obey her father "'and fix it as early as possible. "'When once fixed, it shall not be changed or put off "'on any account or consideration whatever, if my name's Croyland. "'As for the dresses, don't you trouble your head about that. "'I'll undertake the dresses and have them all down from London by the coach. "'Give me the size of your waist, Edith, upon a piece of string, "'and your length from shoulder to heel, and leave all the rest to me. "'If I don't dress her like a mohammedan princess may i never hear bismillah again edith smiled but answered i don't think that will be at all necessary my dear uncle to put you to the trouble 
and I do not think it would answer its purpose if you took it. "'But I will have my own way,' said Mr. Corland. "'You are my pet, and all the matrimonial arrangements shall be mine. "'If you don't mind, and say another word, "'I'll insist upon being bridesmaid, too, "'for I can encroach in my demands, I tell you, "'as well as a lady or a prime minister.' "'As he spoke, the farther progress of the discussion "'was interrupted by the entrance of Zara, "'followed by Sir Edward Digby. "'Her colour was a little heightened, "'and her manner somewhat agitated.' but she shook hands with her uncle and Leighton, neither of whom she had seen before during that morning, and then passing by her father in her way towards Edith, she whispered a word to him as she went. "'What? What?' exclaimed Sir Robert Croyland, suddenly turning round towards Digby, with a look of alarm and pressing his left hand upon his side. "'She says you have something important to tell me, Sir Edward. Pray speak. I have no secrets from those who are around me.' "'I am sure what I have to say will shock all present,' replied Sir Edward Digby gravely. "'But the fact is, I heard a report this morning from my servant "'that Mr. Radford had destroyed himself last night in prison, "'and I rode over as fast as I could to ascertain if the rumour was correct. "'I found that it was but too accurate, "'and that the unhappy man terminated a career of crime "'by the greatest that he could commit.' "'Well, that's one rascal less in the world. "'That's some comfort,' said Mr. Zachary Croyland. "'I would rather, indeed, he had let someone else hang him "'instead of doing it himself, "'for I don't approve of suicide at all. "'It's foolish and wicked and cowardly. "'Still nothing else could be expected from such a man. "'But what's the matter with you, Robert? "'You seem ill. "'Surely you can't take this man's death much to heart.' "'Sir Robert Croyland did not reply, "'but made a faint sign to open the window, "'which was immediately done.' "'and he revived under the influence of the air. "'I will go out for a few minutes,' he said, rising, "'and Edith, instantly starting up, approached to go with him. "'He would not suffer her, however. "'No, my child,' he replied to her offer. "'No, you can understand what I feel, but I shall be better presently. "'Stay here and let all this be settled. "'And remember, Edith, name the earliest day possible. "'Arrange with Zara and Digby. "'Theirs can take place at the same time.' Thus saying, he went out, and was seen walking slowly to and fro upon the terrace for some minutes after. In the meanwhile, the war had commenced between Mr. Zachary Croyland and his younger niece. "'Ah, Mrs. Madcap!' he exclaimed. "'So I hear tales of you. The coquette has been caught at length. You are going to commit matrimony, and as birds of a feather flock together, the wild girl and the wild boy must pair.' With her usual light, graceful step and with her usual gay and brilliant smile, Zara left Sir Edward Digby's side and crossed over to her uncle, rested both her hands upon his arm while he stood as erect and stiff as a finger-post, gazing down upon her with a look of sour fun. But in Zara's eyes, beautiful and beaming as they were, there was a look of deeper feeling than they usually displayed when jesting, as was her wont with Mr. Croyland. "'Well, Chit,' he said, "'Well, what do you want? A new gown, or a smart hat, or a riding whip, with a tiger's head in gold at the top?' "'No, my dear uncle,' she answered. "'But I want you not to tease me, nor to laugh at me, nor to abuse me just now. For once in my life I feel that I must be serious, and I think even less teasing than ordinary might be too much for me. Perhaps, one time or another, you may find out that poor Zara's coquetry was more apparent than real, and that though she had an object, "'It was a better one than you, in your benevolence, were disposed to think.' 
An unwanted drop swam in her eyes as she spoke, and Mr. Croyland gazed down upon her tenderly for a moment. Then, throwing his arms round her, he kissed her cheek. "'I know it, my dear,' he said. "'I know it. Edith has told me all, and she who has been a kind, good sister will, I am sure, be a kind, good wife. Here, take her away, Digby. A better girl doesn't live, whatever I may have said. The worst of it is, she is a great deal too good for you.' "'or any other wild harem scarum fellow. "'But stay, stay,' he continued, "'as Digby came forward laughing and took Zara's hand. "'Here's something with her, "'for, as I am sure you will be a couple of spendthrifts, "'it is but fit that you should have something to set out upon.' "'Mr. Croyland, as he spoke, "'put his hand into the somewhat wide and yawning pocket "'of his broad-tailed coat, "'and produced his pocket-book "'from which he drew forth a small slip of paper.' "'Digby took it and looked at it, but instantly held it out again to Mr. Croyland, saying, "'My dear sir, it is quite unnecessary. "'I claim nothing but her hand, and that is mine by promises "'which I hope will not be very long ere they are fulfilled.' "'Nonsense! Nonsense!' cried Mr. Croyland, "'putting away the paper with the back of his hand. "'Did ever anyone see such a fool? "'I tell you, Sir Edward Digby,' "'I'm as proud a man as you are, "'and you shall not marry my niece "'without receiving the same portion as her sister possesses. "'I hate all eldest sons, as you well know, "'and I don't see why eldest daughters should exist either. "'I'll have them all equal. "'No differences here. "'I've made up to Zara the disparity "'which one fool of an uncle thought fit to put between her and Edith. "'Such was always my intention, "'and, moreover, let it be clearly understood "'that when you have put this old carrion underground,' "'What I leave is to be divided between them. "'All equal, all equal, co-heiresses of Zachary Croyland Esquire, "'surnamed the Nabob, alias the Misanthrope, "'and then, if you like it, you may each bear in your arms "'a crow rampant on an escutcheon of pretense.' "'Thank you, thank you, my dear uncle,' answered Edith Croyland, "'while Zara's gay heart was too full to let her speak.' "'Thank you for such thought of my sweet sister, "'for indeed to me, during long years of sorrow and trouble, "'she has been the spirit of consolation, comfort, strength, even hope.' "'Poor Zara was overpowered, and she burst into tears. "'It seemed as if all the feelings which, for the sake of others, "'she had so long suppressed, all the emotions, anxieties, and cares "'which she had conquered or treated lightly, "'in order to give aid and support to Edith,' "'rushed upon her at once in the moment of joy and overwhelmed her. "'Why, what's the foolish girl crying about?' exclaimed Mr. Croyland. "'But then, drawing her kindly to him, he added, "'Come, my dear, we will make a truce upon the following conditions. "'I won't tease you any more, and you shall do everything I tell you. "'In the first place, then, wipe your eyes and dry up your tears.' "'for if Digby sees how red your cheeks can look when you've been crying, "'he may find out that you are not quite such a Venus as he fancies just now. "'There, go along,' and he pushed her gently away from him. "'While this gayer conversation had been going on within, "'Mr. Osborne had passed through the glass doors "'and was walking slowly up and down with Sir Robert Croyland. "'The subject they spoke upon must have been grave, "'for there was gloom upon both their faces when they returned.' "'I know it,' said Sir Robert Croyland to his companion as they entered the room. "'I am quite well aware of it. "'It is that which makes me urge speed.' "'If such be your view,' replied Mr. Osborne, "'you are right, Sir Robert, "'and heaven bless those acts which are done under such impressions.' 
The party in the drawing-room heard no more, and notwithstanding the kindly efforts of Mrs. Barbara, and a thousand little impediments which, with the very best motives in the world, she created or discovered, all the arrangements for the double marriage were made with great promptitude and success. At the end of somewhat less than a fortnight, without any noise or parade, the two sisters stood together at the altar, and pledged their troth to those they truly loved. Sir Robert Croyland seemed well and happy, for during the last few days previous to the wedding, both his health and spirit had apparently improved. But, ere a month was over, both his daughters received a summons to return as speedily as possible to Harborne House. They found him on the bed of death, with his brother and Mr. Osborne sitting beside him. But their father greeted them with a well-contented smile, and reproved their tears in a very different tone from that which he had been generally accustomed to use. "'My dear children,' he said in a feeble voice, "'I have often longed for this hour, and though life has become happier now, I have for many weeks seen death approaching, and have seen it without regret. I did not think it would have been so slow, and that was the cause of my hurry in your marriage, for I longed to witness it with my own eyes, yet was unwilling to mingle the happiness of such a union with the thought that it took place while I was in sickness and danger. My brother will be a father to you, I am sure, when I am gone, but still it is some satisfaction to know that you have both better protectors, even here on earth, than he or I could be. I trust you are happy, and believe me, I am not otherwise, though lying here with death before me. Towards four o'clock on the following day, the windows of Harborne House were closed, and about a week after, the mortal remains of Sir Robert Croyland were conveyed to the family vault in the village church. Mr. Croyland succeeded to the estates and title of his brother, but he would not quit the mansion which he himself had built, leaving Mrs. Barbara, with a handsome income, which he secured to her, to act the Lady Bountiful of Harborne House. The fate of Edith and Zara we need not farther trace. It was such as might be expected from the circumstances in which they were now placed. We will not venture to say that it was purely happy, for when was ever pure and unalloyed happiness found on earth? There were cares, there were anxieties, there were griefs from time to time, for the splendid visions of young imagination may be prophetic, of joys that shall be ours, if we deserve them in our trial here, but are never realised within the walls of of our mortal prison, and recede before us to take their stand for ever beyond the portals of the tomb. But still they were as happy as human beings, perhaps, ever were, for no peculiar pangs or sufferings were destined to follow those which had gone before, and in their domestic life, having chosen well and wisely, they found, as every one will find, who judges upon such grounds, that love, when it is pure and high and true, is a possession to the brightness of which even hope can add no sweetness, imagination no splendour that it does not in itself possess. The reader may be inclined to ask the after-fate of some of the other characters mentioned in this work. In regard to many of them, I must give an unsatisfactory reply. What became of most, indeed, I do not know. The name of Mole, the officer of customs, is still familiar to the people of Hythe and its neighbourhood. It is certain that Ramley and one of his sons were hanged, but the rest of the records of that respectable family are, I fear, lost to the public. Little Starlight seems to have disappeared from that part of the country for some time, 
and in truth I have no certainty that the well-known pickpocket, Knight Ray, who was transported to Botany Bay some thirty years after the period of this tale, and was shot in an attempt to escape, was the same person whose early career is here recorded. But of one thing the reader may be perfectly certain, that, whatever was the fortune which attended any of the persons I have mentioned, whether worldly prosperity or temporary adversity befell them, the real, the solid good, the happiness of spirit, was awarded in exact proportion to each as their acts were good and their hearts were pure. End of chapter 13 End of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James